go round, the beat goes faster It's my favorite tune, I'm the Soviet Blaster And everyone here Hello folks and welcome to the Antifada, I'm, I'm Sean and I'm here with Andy and we have a very, very special guest today, a guest that we've been uh, working to get on the podcast for at least a year or so but who has been very busy because he's a Marxist analyst um, and a Ukrainian uh, who's been doing a lot of work speaking with all sorts of international groups who are trying to analyze and understand the conflict that's happening over there, its recent history, and its deep history. So with that, I'd like to welcome to the show Volodymyr uh, Eshenko. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me here. We are in a spot right now where there's a lot of uh, rhetoric, there's a lot of good analysis, there's a lot of bad analysis coming out about not just Ukraine and Russia, but the broader post-Soviet sphere. And you've been spending two years, as I said, in high demand, under uh, kind of explaining the nuts and bolts of the last of the history of the last couple of years to the last 30 years, last 100 years. So this uh, conversation that we're going to have today, we'd like to be a little bit more advanced um, and a little bit more in-depth in, uh, on important issues like um, what's the role of the international left vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainian left and the Russian left uh, in the course of this conflict? What might a reconstruction look like that we could internationally play a part in? Um, all sorts of que analytical questions about the political economy of the region and how it isn't quite so alien from, say, our political economy in the quote-unquote West, as we might imagine it. In order to uh, kickstart that conversation, uh, I found a couple of really great paragraphs uh, from a recent uh, article of yours about the left uh, in an um, article called The Russian Invasion and the Left in Ukraine and Beyond. And so I'll read these paragraphs, and I think this will give the listeners a basis to understand what your arguments are. All right. So this is you speaking now. <laughs> The sharp divisions within the left in Ukraine and beyond over the Russian invasion cannot be understood without delving into the profound class conflict that underlies this war. This conflict cuts across the entire post-Soviet landscape, pitting political capitalists, commonly but imprecisely referred to as oligarchs, against professional middle classes aligned with transnational capital organized under U.S. hegemony. In Ukraine, this conflict manifested itself as the infamous regional cleavage, which divided Ukrainian politics into, quote, eastern and western camps. Although the cleavage was typically but superficially reduced to ethno-linguistic or cultural differences between Ukraine's southeastern and western central regions, or dismissed altogether as a mere manipulation by rival elites to enhance their legitimacy, the camps on opposite sides of the divide were profoundly asymmetrical in terms of the class coalitions behind them and in their political capacity. The Western camp advocated a comprador integration as Western periphery that primarily benefited the professional middle classes within Ukraine, but threatened most of the political ruling classes, class as well as marginalized uh, significant segments of Ukraine's workers. At the same time, the Eastern camp, these are all in quotes each time, um, misleadingly labeled pro-Russian, had little to offer in comparison between st the stability of the post-Soviet stagnation. Uh, 
Moreover, the Western camp was supported by a narrow but influential civil society of neoliberal NGOs and radical nationalist parties and paramilitaries, which was particularly strengthened by the Euromaidan revolution. The Eastern camp civil society was profoundly weaker. The Russian invasion itself can be seen as a result of the escalation of the deep post-Soviet hegemony crisis, reflecting the inability of the political capitalist class to lead a comprehensive development agenda and the deficiency of Maidan revolutions, which amplified the middle class and nationalist civil societies with their unpopular agendas, thus reproducing and intensifying the crisis. Putin decided to compensate for the deficit of soft power the Russian ruling class could enjoy in Ukraine with military force, betting on a quick operation to decapitate the Ukrainian state with limited military forces, overestimating the destabilizing impact of real crisis tendencies in Ukrainian politics and society, and underestimating the degradation of the Russian military to prepare and conduct a complex, high-risk operation. So that's sort of the outline of where uh, where we are today, I suppose, uh, looking at this conflict a couple of years in. Would you like to expand on anything you said there? I think the idea of uh, the narrowed civil society is a really important point for people trying to understand the politics. And also, of course, this legitimacy crisis, which is not only, of course, a Ukrainian or a Russian problem, but an American and quote unquote Western problem as well. Well, it's uh, like... It could be. <laughs> it's like a summary of my my studies for for the last couple of years, and that's very much kind of like kind of like squeezed summary. So it's a lot to, to expand on each sure. of the of the point. Well, that's true. That we are living through the hegemony crisis that in uh, in the post-Soviet space started even before the Soviet Union collapsed. It was basically the the crisis of the Soviet hegemony that started. Like roughly at the end of the 1960s, and so we are basically in the same very long period of time where we haven't found any stable form of politics to replace the the Soviet hegemony so far. Maybe it may emerge from this war, but that's too early to to say. And it's also true that it's not simply a Russian or Ukrainian problems. That's a that's a conflict that cuts through the whole. Uh, post-Soviet space. It's basically the class conflict that only uh, uh, with, the, with the escalation, with the development, beca became more ethnicized, got more national forms. But that's not how it uh, how it started. And oh, there is obviously a global context for that because we could sp speak about uh, the uh, hegemony crisis in the form of the crisis of political representation in many Western countries uh, speaking about the uh, weakness of participation in the uh, traditional political institutions, why people are less voting at all at the elections, why they are less voting for the traditional elites, why they are, they may vote for some populist parties, right wing or left wing, um, uh, why there is more violence, um, uh, more like anti-systemic um, political practices. Uh, there is also like geopolitical dimension of the hegemony crisis, the crisis of U United States hegemony, uh, which is a very important part of what, why, why the war in Ukraine started as well. But not only in Ukraine, also in Palestine and also in many other, other places in the world. So that's 
pretty pretty logical to see when when the basic political structure of the world is if not collapsing but definitely weakening there are there would be many many places where the political structure would be challenged and ukraine is one of the one one of those places so that's that's uh, yeah i hope you will, will have time to talk about some of those things in in the coming hour yeah i think i i hope so too you uh tend to use a uh, gramscian uh, analysis of hegemony so hegemony not meaning uh simply like the the raw power of the state but as a compulsive force that ties together a legitimacy not just in the intellectual sphere and political sphere but also in the moral sphere and in the sphere of under of self-understanding of people so how does this gramscian analysis help us understand the way in which in let's say the the post-1991 era uh, they're developed in uh, Ukraine and Russia in that entire sphere, or failed to develop in that sphere, a hegemony of what developed in the West, uh, in the United States and other places, which is which we would call neoliberalism. Why was it that that was unable to take hold and become a sort of hegemonic uh, rallying point for ruling classes in the region? Like, well, the uh, hegemony of the capitalist class in the West they developed for much more decades. And perhaps the post-Second World War decades were the peak time of, of the capitalist hegemony in terms of the uh, intellectual, moral, and political leadership over the subaltern classes, which... Uh, like, connected the material interests of the working class primarily with the uh, with the interests of, of the ruling class so hegemony is uh, is never simply kind of like manipulation is never it's uh, quite something different from the false consciousness it's actually a rational uh, connection of the interests and the ideologies that built on the hegemony they are particularly strong so that's what we what we've seen at the peak uh, in the in the glorious thirty years after the Second World War, and that's a big difference from um, how capitalism um, started to build in in the post-Soviet uh, countries, where the ruling classes, which were to a large extent, they were either transformed Soviet elite, so-called nomenklatura, the top communist uh, elite or they were uh, instru instrumental in creating those new riches that took the commanding heights in the post-Soviet economies. Uh, so uh, I'm calling them political capitalists following Branko Milanovic, or there's also a very important Hungarian sociologist, Ivan Seleni, who uses uh, this... Uh, like Weberian term uh, in, a, in, a, in a quite similar way. So basically, we're speaking about a, a, a fraction of capitalist class uh, that uh, whose uh, major competitive advantage are the selective benefits from the state, unlike uh, any technological innovation or the uh, exploitation or the extreme exploitation of the labor force which is like characteristic for the third world. So if you have these political capitalists and they, in a very short period of time, they take uh, the commanding heights of the economy, they privatize the uh, lucrative parts of the economy, which were before that uh, in the so-called uh, all people's 
property. Basically, the state property um, presented as uh, the property of the whole nation. Uh, and they're becoming very rich at the, at, the, at the same time when the majority of the population is becoming immiserated, they're becoming quite poor. And so the, the power of this new ruling class does not have any uh, ideological, traditional, religious sources of legitimacy. It's completely different um, uh, way in, in comparison to how the capitalist uh, class emerged in, in the Western countries where they had like centuries of development and they had uh, religious legitimation for that. Uh, but in, in, a, in, in certain period of time, ideological legitimation has emerged. Uh, and uh, so that happened very quick. That happened without without basis. And so until until this period, and not only the post-Soviet space, but also in the formerly state socialist countries of the Eastern Europe, if you look at the service, you would see that the uh, majority of the population still do not see the large private property as legitimate. Mm. And that means that they see those who have it as basically thieves, as mafia, bandits, who just stolen people's property. And that's the, the, the very fundamental background of the hegemony crisis. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, of course, then it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very long argument and long story how it may lead to the war. But this is important to understand that we are starting from this point of view, that those people who came to power, who <coughs> started to control the biggest parts of the post-Soviet economies who control the political power uh, were not seen as legitimate at all. And that's, uh, that's created a huge problem for, for the development of post-Soviet politics that partially may be resolving right now at the battlefields of Ukraine. Yeah, I want to um, talk later on about um, about the future as it as it appears from the battlefield at this very moment, especially the article you send about uh, Russian military Keynesianism, which we'll put in the um, in the document uh, in the show description, I should say. Um, one thing that's that's interesting, and and I want to um, reiterate is you were talking about the rational basis um, for ruling class hegemony, and we know that uh, the real legitimating moment for American capitalism was, of course, the New Deal and the post-war boom that comes out of that. Um, of course, this hegemony goes into crisis in the 1970s as profits go into crisis, uh, but then a new order is, is able to rise. Um, the rational basis, it seems, from, from your writings um, is that what remained of uh, relatively labor-intensive uh, and within the particular trading blocks that Ukrainian industry operates in, these holdovers from the Soviet period, this public property that you said uh, was stolen, essentially, or the census that it was stolen, um, was at least in Ukraine, uh, largely difficult to liquidate by the capitalist class. And so with the West, Western capital then appears as, on the one hand, a savior to eliminate the corruption uh, of uh, Ukrainian political economy, but also as a threat to large portions of the population, too, who rely on this sort of patrimony of Soviet industry in order to make a living and have community and have life. So this is really, in your mind, the basis for or the material basis for these political, um, uh, deep political divisions, right? 
Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, I mean, uh, well, what, what, what does it mean, corruption, for example? That's, uh, typically, we mean that uh, some people uh, illegitimately use the public resources for private goals. That's some, one of the popular understandings of what, what, what corruption is supposed to be. And it's typically the way of how it is used in, in the post-Soviet context as well. So that, that means that the, the uh, corruption is, uh, turns into one of the ideological uh, articulation of that conflict between the political capitalists uh, for whom the corruption or more like objectively defined selective benefits from the state. So those benefits that the state provides to some specific group of capitalists, not to the whole class and, and right. definitely not to the whole nation. Which but is an important they, they, distinction. Yeah, yeah, they, they're selective. They're only for this person, this group, this clan, this family and so on. And uh, and, and and but from by, by the by the society, it is perceived as corruption. It's, it's, it's kind of like it's completely legitimate. And furthermore, they accuse the ruling elite that they are usurping the power in the state in order to uh, sustain corruption. So basically, this, uh, these two words, corruption and democracy, democracy against usurpation, against monopolization of political power, becomes the, the main uh, ideological uh, words uh, in, in, in the political conflicts, not only in Ukraine, but also in Russia, in Belarus, in Armenia, or different post-Soviet countries where quite typical uh, political conflicts emerged, and some of them went uh, um, less violent, some of them considerably violent, and in Ukraine we see the largest war uh, on the, on the post-Soviet um, space. But basically, that's, we need to understand this. This is the same uh, class conflict which cuts across the whole, the whole space. And in Ukraine, it's fought on, on the uh, escalated uh, level of violence. Yeah, I, I think it's important to bring up your arguments. And you touched on it earlier about um, the failure... Uh, for a strong um, civil society or working class organization uh, to arise, even in the course of three different revolutions that Ukraine has had since, uh, since the 1990s. In each of these cases, you talk about, while there does develop a very narrow civil society, um, it tends to be uh, a sort of westernized NGO civil society, kind of ersatz civil society, which is actually very similar to the West as well, right? So much of what uh, passes for our civil society today in the West um, is sort of almost like a privatization of social functions and political functions that had previously been part of, you know, like an organic de, de Tocqueville sort of, uh, you know, opening up and free association of peoples. So talk about the... Uh, these revolutions, the uh, color revolution, the revolution of granite, and of course, Maidan, which we haven't touched on yet, and why it was that there was it was impossible for those to break through. Uh, they could pose uh, an anti-corruption, um, uh, an anti-corruption politics, but th this could merely only shift the elites, the particular clique of elites that was in power at a given time. Well, it's... it's uh... 
It's a very important question and an interesting question about the development of the post-Soviet civil societies. And I would say that, uh, like in a certain way, they may be uh, similar to certain tendencies in the West. Uh, but again, the, the background is quite different as uh, the uh, NGOization or neoliberalization of the civil societies in the West happens in the uh, still on the background of quite developed labor unions, which uh, were powerful and important, and they are still a considerable force. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm speaking right now from Germany, where mm. it's like a year of transportation strikes. Uh, the uh, strikes of education uh, employees. That's uh, nothing like this, uh, or at least on and on that scale. We, we, we have never seen in, in, in Ukraine mm. that would like provide a, a tool for, for the workers to, 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 to win the important benefits for them. So even now, under the decades of the degradation of the labor movement, uh, the uh, labor unions have considerable power, but they didn't have this, uh, uh, have it have it in Ukraine. The largest strikes in 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 Ukraine was actually 1993, the strike mm. of the Donbas miners, and the, ironically, they had also some of the so-called pro-Russian political demands at that moment. That, so they they striked also for some autonomy for for the region. The things that are Quite like basically criminalized to talk right now in Ukraine, uh, and the we've never seen the that scale of the labor activity that was happening in the late Soviet years when the Soviet workers were striking, and that was also a part of the processes that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and to Ukraine's independence in particular. Uh, the so. Uh, and, and so we get a kind of like a very asymmetrical structure of the civil society where the labor part is very weak, uh, but the, in relative terms, this NGO side is, uh, has considerable strength thanks to the, their support from the West and, uh, and also the uh, radical nationalist part. Uh, kind of like turns into the main ideologically driven mobilizationist movement, which may not be electorally popular, but develops a kind of the um, political infrastructure that is important to, for, uh, for a movement with some ideology, with some mobilization, with some participation, and quite different from the uh, typical political structures of the of the usual post-Soviet parties, which are basically like paper parties without any membership, so you're, without you're any referring, grassroots. You're referring to like um, right sector in this instance and later mm -hmm. as of battalion and groups like this? That's, that's, those are even later developments, but okay. even in the 1990s, uh, the Social National Party of Ukraine, which Oof. later was, yeah, the, basically they, 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 they took uh, very explicit Nazi um, references, then they were reframed, rebranded as Svoboda Party, Freedom Party, in a certain way, quite typical to how, for example, the uh, National Front uh, developed and kind of like was trying to de detoxify themselves 
but still, Soboda Party was was kind of like build, building uh, some substantial electoral constituency. In uh, 2012, they were able to win 10% of the votes, uh, the elections. They were able to win some of the local elections in the Western Ukraine for that. So that, that, that was kind of like a party built, built on ideology, built on some, some strong uh, local organizations trying to work in the civil society and very different from so-called oligarchic parties. Uh, some comparison could be, for example, the, Co the Communist Party of Ukraine, which was a part of like, a typical communist successor party, a fragment of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And for a certain period of time, in the 1990s, it could be claimed that it was basically the only real party in, some, in the mobilizationist membership of the party. Yeah. Uh, but the difference, and, and in the 90s, it was very important, it was the most popular party and uh, together with other um, successor parties, they were capable to win uh, even like majorities in the parliament. Uh, but that part of the Ukrainian politics was declining. At the same time, radical nationalists, uh, they were on the rise. Um, and so uh, going back to the civil society uh, question, and a huge asymmetry. So mm. NGOs supported by the West, and especially uh, after the latest Euromaidan revolution, uh, the radical nationalists who have uh, not really support from the West uh, to that extent, although there were, there were also a lot of investigations how, for example, Western um, institutions were, let's say, training the units in the Ukrainian military, which is very explicit right-wing um, alliances. Uh, but still, their, their, their power was coming mostly from their, their capacity for the street mobilization, from their capacity to form paramilitary and military units. Azov is a primary example of, of the development. Uh, and on the other side, uh, the declining communists uh, the uh, fragmented and weak uh, labor unions, not really capable for the na national strikes. Um, in one of the studies, for example, I analyzed how, how the Euromaidan revolution radicalized into violence precisely because it was not capable to organize a labor strike against uh, uh, President Yanukovych. Although mm. there, there was there, there been some of the ideas, so let's let, let's strike, let's try to to bring down Yanukovych in a peaceful way. It didn't work, and that's why they turned to violence, where specifically the groups that were capable for violence, the radical nationalists foremost, they played a so prominent role. And, and so uh, this asymmetric structure, and then uh, we have these revolutions. And revolutions are not the social revolutions anymore, but the kind of like, uh, a new kind of revolution. revolution. A civic, I, I, uh, deficient revolution, you call yeah, them, or yeah, a civic yeah, urban revolution. My, 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 different researchers called them in a different way, color revolutions or civic revolutions, contemporary urban revolutions. Um, uh, I, I, I prefer to call them like Maidan revolutions, because mm. basically Maidan turned into a generic word in post-Soviet space. And it also has some very explicit connections to the, the very word Maidan comes to from Turkic languages, 
and uh, it's so understood as, as, as the, the big central square of the city yeah. where like the uh, people, the, like the, the insurrection the, in Gezi Square, for example, exactly, at Istanbul, exactly. like, right? Like on, yeah, like on Tahrir Maidan, and, and so that's uh, it brings also connection to uh, to the Arab Spring, and uh, it's it's a good image of uh, the, uh, the 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 locus of the of uh, supposedly direct democracy, and also at the same time. Uh, amorphous crowds, which are poorly organized, which are weakly, um, which have uh, which have only weak leadership, which have only vaguely articulated claims, and so this this is uh, these are really um, revolutions under weak counter hegemony, where we don't have any parties or even political movements coming organically. From from the people, and that could uh, propose to them some forward-looking agenda, and so they 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 happen, and that's uh, again that's a very big difference from the social revolutions, which were developing through decades, and that were also continuing in decades, like speaking about Russian Bolshevik Revolution, mm-hmm. where the, the the agenda of building communism was on that un- until 1980s. And uh, the, the people who were doing that revolution were also understanding themselves as they were building all their life careers as revolutionaries. The participants of the contemporary revolutions are not even thinking about themselves as revolutionaries until some big protest starts. And then after a few weeks, it ends. And then they, they just go back. Most of them go back to their usual life. They're not really participating in the revolution. So this kind of deficient revolution, they offer political opportunities, polit- uh, the opening of political space, which can be used by only, uh, primarily by the privileged groups, mm-hmm. by those groups who have specific resources. And in our case, it's, it, that means that the uh, NGOs and the radical nationalists are becoming stronger in the revolution. And this uh, ends in the amplification of the asymmetrical structure uh, within the civil society. And so after the revolution, the state is uh, weakened and uh, the, these uh, segments of the uh, radical wing of the so-called Western camp in Ukrainian politics, the neoliberal NGOs, uh, which are in a open alliance with the transnational capital, they get more opportunities to influence the politics. Uh, but they are not representing the interest of the majority of the population in Ukraine. And so in this way, the, the revolution, which addresses the crisis of representation, as we've been we're speaking about the corruption, lack of democracy, why, why these guys are even ruling us. But they bring to power, they, they increase the influence of the groups, which are in the same way, are not representing the majorities. Right. But they are, are capable to impose a very specific, very particular agendas on the politics. And in this way, they intensified the very crisis. Fascinating stuff. The, um, the, the question of nationalism is a big one. Uh, Derek Varn and I are in the process of doing a multi-part series trying to understand from a Marxist perspective, from a communist perspective, uh, the enduring legacy of uh, nationalism. Why is it that you think um, nationalism is taking this particular form that it is uh, in Ukraine at the moment? 
there's this conception that um, there's like a um, a modernization. There's like a teleology, right, of of nations passing through various different phases in order to become sovereign entities uh, with a dispassionate, neutral bureaucracy um, and a body of laws, uh, and also, of course, too. A, um, an even playing field, allegedly, for capital and labor. This process has failed. And you mentioned earlier that um, a sort of neo-Nazism uh, took the place and allied itself with one wing. What is it about um, nationalism in this particular area, the entire post-Soviet space and Ukraine in particular, that's different? And how do you explain uh, the, its enduring legacy? Is it part of the, is it a product of the Marxist-Leninist nationalities policy? Is it about a crisis of uh, representation that the nation poses itself as a solution to? Is it part of this larger asymmetrical battle between different groups? Talk a little bit about nationalism. Well, that's again, that's a huge question. Um, and uh, I think the three elements are important. Uh, so one, one of them is the uh, that again, we, we need to talk about class. And mm -hmm. so um, the class coalitions that stayed, uh, st stay behind uh, Ukrainian nationalism now uh, is very different from the uh, class coalitions that stood, stood behind the national liberation movements in the, in the global south, for example, mm. where the anti-colonial revolutions were led by uh, the... They were happening basically in the peasant society, to start with. Uh, Ukraine, Ukraine and most other post-Soviet countries are urbanized societies. So we do not have that basic uh, subaltern class which was uh, the, 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 the social basis of the national liberation struggles. And the, the peasants were also allied with the revolutionary intelligentsia, with parts of the workers, although the workers were usually uh, weak in those countries, and also with the national bourgeoisie, right? So th that that's a typical class alliance behind the the third world anti-imperialist national liberation struggle, right? In, in the case of Ukraine, we see an alliance of primarily of the professional middle classes with the transnational capital uh, that includes uh, the interest of the Western capital, but also parts of the basically comprador bourgeoisie. Right. And also uh, on the superficially allied sections of the working class who are also benefiting from the uh, Western integration. So we're speaking about some IT employees, uh, about the migrant workers, those who who worked, who, who migrated to work in the European Union primarily, and on, and their families started to, to depend on them. So they were obviously interested in the deepened integration into the EU. Uh, but that's only uh, some sections of the working classes. The other sections, for example, working in the uh, remains of the uh, developed uh, Soviet industries, heavy machinery, metallurgy, they uh, usually voted for for the Eastern camp, misleadingly called pro-Russian, as, as, as you read uh, from one of my paragraphs. Yeah. 
at the, at the very start. So the, the class coalition is very different. And so that means that we are getting a very different kind of nationalism. Uh, then uh, the legacy is also important. Uh, the uh, legacy of any kind of, uh, uh, let's say, socialist Ukrainian nationalism was basically destroyed mm. in, 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 in the 1920s, in the 1930s by, the, by the Stalin's repression. Uh, we could speak about the uh, Soviet nation-building project, uh, where Ukrainians were also a part of. Uh, and uh, Ukrainians became, uh, uh, basically most of Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainians were included into something like a modern nation in the Soviet period of time. Uh, but for for the variety of reasons, uh, and one of them we actually we've discussed before, the, 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 this uh, project lost its um, forward-looking agenda. Right. So that that was ex exactly part of this hegemony crisis. What 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 was supposed to 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 uh, follow after the Soviet Union collapse? And what what was possible to build on on the on on, on the Soviet identity, right? And so this is kind of like a void, where a different a legacy of the uh, um, pretty right wing uh, variety of nationalism, which uh, uh, was saved in the Western uh, Ukrainian diaspora uh, and which came from the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the uh, radical nationalists, and so, some scholars call them basically fascists. Yeah, the least, ba Banderites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ban yeah ban uh, the Bandera movement, uh, at least belonging to that uh, broad fascist family of the movements uh, that emerged in the 1930s Europe. Uh, and then which had quite difficult history of collaboration and confrontation with the Nazis during the Second, Second World War. So they were defeated in Ukraine by the Red Army, but many of them, they, they found, found refuge in, in the Northern America, in the United States, Canada, in some of the Western European countries. And uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, they've got the opportunity to start influencing the politics in Ukraine as well. And also starting the influence in the, the ideological dimension, the, uh, the education. Um, and uh, we, we've got the situation where for, when there was basically no other uh, vi viable tradition in Ukrainian nationalism but them. And so you have a kind of like a, a situation where we do have kind of like liberal Ukrainian nationalists who are pro-European, even in a in certain way they are even supporting the left liberal agenda, support for minorities, for LGBT, for uh, they, are, they are genuinely concerned about climate change. And at the same time, they, they have a very strong uh, uh, nationalistic and even ethno-nationalistic uh, positions. Uh, but they do not really have so far um, 
any kind of like a coherent uh, movement, any kind of like uh, any tradition, because that tradition was was basically weak and even more so destroyed by by by, by in, in the Soviet Union. And so they they're now in the situation when they need to reinvent it. And that's where all, all, all this discussion about Ukraine and Europe, global Ukraine are coming from. But that's only uh, precisely that they, they need to, to ask this question, to raise this question. That's a symptom of their weakness. They, they need to solve this problem. And it's not even certain that they would solve this problem because it's, it's not simply an, an ideological exercise. Yeah. Let's imagine a better Ukraine that would feed some... European Union and, and um, agenda and, and it would be more kind of like in a um, more suitable for for also for liberal Western elites uh, <laughs> more acceptable than uh, than traditional Bandera movement, yeah. right? Uh, but it's also the problem of of offering this modernization development. So the the Soviet Union offered it. And so the Soviet Union was modernizing the the, the population that uh, was living on the, on the Ukrainian territory, on the contemporary Ukrainian territory, and that's why the, 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 those uh, many of those uh, issues, identities, and cultures uh, based on the on on the, on the Russian language culture, and on the late Soviet um, culture and art are so so kind of like embedded so so deeply entrenched into a large portion of the Ukrainian population. So, and so w w whatever is happening for the last 30 years, revolutions, wars, but still the, a very large group of Ukrainians are sticking to that. And they may think uh, differently about Russia, uh, but it's uh, not exactly the, the transforming their identity. And so uh, unless the... Uh, let's say anti-Russian Ukrainian nationalism based on the professional middle class and transnational capital would offer this forward-looking modernization for the Ukraine, for, for, for contemporary Ukraine. Um, it's not certain that they would uh, leave so strong a legacy. And uh, the final element uh, about the nature of uh, Ukrainian nationalism is, is that there is something of a global tendency for kind of like tribalism, mm. or neo-tribalism, where the, we are losing any kind of like universal appeal. And so one of the examples with, with the same people who are so 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 deeply concerned about the war in Ukraine could be completely insensitive to, for example, to what's going on in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was completely ethnically cleansed by Azerbaijan very recently. Mm -hmm. What what did they say about that? And even more so about Palestine. Yeah. yeah. So it just it just shows that. It's completely different standards apply to different kinds of people. So there are simply our own uh, people who are kind of like aligned with our interests. And those people are fighting in Ukraine against Russia, right? And so that's the main reason that they support it. And then another reason that they care so much about Ukrainian identity and the preservation of Ukrainian language and any... any, any, any uh, 
assimilationist uh, plans of, of Putin's regime, or that one people or two different people, all these things. And 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 to, the, 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 when uh, as horrible things, maybe even more horrible things are happening in other parts of the world, but which are not aligned with the Western interests, it's not a concern for them at all. Yeah. So that's that, and 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 then uh, it's it's not simply some cynical realpolitik. That that's also that um, we see this among the people who are intellectuals who are like academics who are scholars who, who try, started to construct kind of like ideological uh, superstructure over there. Yeah. And they, they kind of like, like genuinely believing in that. that. And some people are, as I said, they are almost like ready to say that, I mean, that <laughs> the Western colonies were not uh, real colonies. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but but, the, but Ukraine was was, was like, like the... Uh, the, the most paradigmatic case of colonialism. Right, it's right. just complete revision of, 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 the, of the history, of, of the basic concepts of, in the social sciences. It's but they, 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 that's a, a logical consequence of, of, of the development of tribalism. So these this three elements, the hegemony crisis, the different uh, class uh, structure of the, of the conflict, the legacy and the Tribal strengths. Uh, I think they are important to understand well, how the contemporary Ukrainian nationalism is developing. Very, very. Yeah. Um, you write a lot in the book about this hope that the centralization of a hegemony around, you know, the Putin's regime or around the the post Maidan regime in, in Ukraine could create a counter hegemony from below. Uh, do you think that the only real counter hegemony that's on the rise is the, is this nationalist tribalism or, or do you see evidence of something more from the working in subaltern classes well it's uh i'm not even certain that tribalism could be uh, hegemonic in any sense because like by definition tribalism is about particularist uh, mm. interest and identities and hegemony uh, like a proper hegemony it must have a universal appeal so <laughs> It's, it's like a, uh, it's, it's a, like a fascist a international is almost a contradiction yeah, it's exactly. in terms. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a contradiction in, in terms. So that's, uh, tribalism is one of the symptoms of the hegemony crisis, one of the most bright symptoms of that. Uh, and uh, when we, are, we are, would be ready to overcome the crisis, and uh, when we would, there would be viable hegemony or counter-hegemony projects, they would necessarily would have a universal appeal. And that when from even 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 when they would use the old terms, let's say democracy against authoritarianism, that democracy should be seen by the majority of the people in the world as as democracy, but not as simply as some some uh, uh, cover up for Western imperialist interests. That's how the way of too too many people see it right now, and for for very good reasons. Uh, so. That's uh, and and that my argument about that the war in Ukraine may uh, push forward some of the processes that may maybe not necessarily in the next years but maybe in the next decades. Uh, so that's kind of like mid-term, long-term processes. They may uh, uh, they may require the uh, ruling classes 
in Russia, first of all, to start of uh, kind of like hegemonizing their their role because they, they would need to explain oh, the sacrifices for which they're sending the soldiers and also civilians to, to, to the front line. They would need to uh, consolidate their political role to make it less personalistic, mm. to build more like sustainable structure, more like ideological, uh, to, to even if it's kind of like nationalist, conservative, imperialist project, it, there could be different kind of nationalisms and different kind of imperialism as well. And uh, certain imperialism could be more hegemonic, certain less. So, and so uh, that would, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not a coincidence, for example, that the uh, greatest social revolutions in our history happened after the periods of the greatest inter-imperialist rivalry, after right. the First World War, after the Second World War, during the Cold War. That uh, was the, the, the three biggest waves of the revolutions, perhaps and also the like the French Revolution itself was also starting from the from the rivalry between England and France, first of all. So uh, the, the ruling classes are demanding more and they need also to, to provide, to show that these sacrifices they're extracting from the subaltern classes are something for some bigger aim. Yeah. They, the, the interests uh, are actually coinciding all right, and with that, uh, we are about ready to go over to the bonus section of this episode. There's been an amazing conversation, really, really powerful analysis, and we're going to continue that on the other side. So if you are not yet a patron of this podcast, I don't know what you're doing to yourself. Andy is completely confused. Uh, we all are. Why you won't go over to the other side with us, but we'll be there. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. Volodymyr, thank you again for appearing, and we'll uh, take a break, and we'll see you again very soon. We have days and one night to spare. Small compartment like a telephone cell. Everyone here has a